For most of the last two years, our studies in the scriptures have been in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. We have certainly taken some detours along the way, as we did over the last month, going through some passages in the New Testament in Jesus' teaching there in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. But each time we have returned back to the book of Deuteronomy, and slowly we have worked our way up to chapter 16. And I, I mean pretty slowly. We're not moving very quickly through the book of Deuteronomy. And so that's where we left off about a month ago was in Deuteronomy 16. And now we're going to take another detour from Deuteronomy again through this summer. And we're going to be going to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Now, when we began our study in Deuteronomy back in January of 2020, which seems at this moment kind of like a lifetime ago. But I shared with the church at that time that Deuteronomy is something of a primer to everything in the Old Testament following the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. It's referred to as the Pentateuch as well. So Deuteronomy is the fifth book. It's the last book in the Torah, the last book in the Pentateuch. And so everything following the book of Deuteronomy kind of looks back to the book of Deuteronomy. Everything that follows this book that we've been studying through reaches back to the teaching of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy to be able to understand the different things that are happening among the children of Israel. So the historic books of the Old Testament, books like Joshua and Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and so on, they play upon the teachings of Moses that are found in the book of Deuteronomy. And then the prophets, when you get to books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then the minor prophets, Obadiah, Zechariah, Zephaniah, all these different books, all the rest of those major and minor prophets, the prophets preach to the people of their day in the land of Israel using the teaching of the book of Deuteronomy. So all of the Old Testament dealing with Israel's life in and also their, their exile from and then their return to the promised land, all of that falls into what is called by Bible commentators and teachers and scholars, it's called the Deuteronomic literature. And it all falls under this, this idea of the Deuteronomic principle. Now, what exactly is the Deuteronomic principle? Of course, that comes from the word Deuteronomy, but what is the Deuteronomic principle? It basically is pretty simple. It is a conditional framework of blessing. In a sense, as I've described it before here at Cross Connection, it is God's algorithm for blessing. It is basically the if this, then that of how God is going to bless his people. So basically, it, it follows along the idea that if Israel, the children of Israel, are faithful to God, and they are faithful to God in his commandments, then they will reap the benefits of long life and blessing in the promised land. But if Israel is unfaithful to God and they do not follow his commandments and obey him, then they will experience, shall we say, like counter blessing or rather they will experience the curses of disobedience and unfaithfulness. Now, all of this is basically summed up at the end of Moses's teaching in Deuteronomy chapter 28, where we read this. I'm going to read a long section of scripture. In fact, today we're going to look at a lot of different long sections of scripture. But in Deuteronomy chapter 18, beginning at verse 1, we read this. 
Now it shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Notice that. If you diligently obey the voice of your, the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of the ground, and the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle, the offspring of your flocks. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command a blessing on you in all your storehouses and in all to which you set your hand, and he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Then the Lord will establish you as his holy people to himself, just as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his way. So we see it very clearly in that passage, this kind of if-then conditional framework where God will bless his people if they will keep his commandments. And that is that whole if-then-this-that sort of thing. If you obey, then blessing. But Moses continues in Deuteronomy chapter 28, and he says this in verse 15. But it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and all his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land, the increase of all your cattle and your offspring and your flocks. Cursed shall you be when you come in. Cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you cursing, confusion, and rebuke in all that you set your hand to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings in which you have forsaken me. Now again, following Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, and the rest of the historic books of the Old Testament, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and so on, we get to see all of this play out in Israel's lives and in their history. For a time, they will be faithful to the Lord. When they have good and godly leaders, basically, is when they will be faithful to the Lord. And then after their leaders are gone, then the children of Israel will drift. And then as they drift, they will go down this spiral, this cycle towards kind of falling away from the Lord and into idolatry, and then they will come under bondage from their enemies. So when they are faithful to the Lord, the nation will flourish. And when they are unfaithful, then again, they'll go down that spiral towards defeat and destruction and bondage to their enemies. And then that's where the prophets come in. So the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, and so forth, the prophets of Israel they come in as Israel is on this downward slide and they show up to call the people of Israel and their leaders back to faith and faithfulness to God. And when the prophets show up, they basically use the book of Deuteronomy as their playbook or as their message script. They predict things largely based upon the book of Deuteronomy. In many ways, the prophets were like experts in Deuteronomy who looked at the sinful conditions of the people of their day, and then they simply prophesied what was going to happen based upon reading what was in the book of Deuteronomy, especially Deuteronomy chapter 28. So, as I've said, Deuteronomy is a key for understanding the Old Testament. It is a primer, which is why our studies in the Old Testament have basically begun with studying Deuteronomy. For many, many years here at Cross Connection, we were on a journey through the New Testament, 
going through all of the epistles of the New Testament and other passages there, and we use the book of Acts as kind of our, our timeline or our primer for the whole of the New Testament, because the book of Acts is like a history book that sets the timeline for everything that follows after the book of Acts. In the same way, Deuteronomy is kind of the key or the primer that sets the tone for everything else that you're going to find in the Old Testament. So we've been using Deuteronomy in that way for the last couple of years. And last year, during the summer, we detoured from Deuteronomy to study the Old Testament book of Esther, which for the season that we were in as a church, but also as a people and as a nation here in the U.S., Esther seemed to me at that time and the other pastors on our staff here at the church, it seemed like just the right book for just the right time. And so this summer, we are detouring from Deuteronomy once again to study a book that is actually really close in the Bible, but also close in historical time, if you will, on the timeline to the book of Esther. We're going to be studying through the book of Nehemiah, which again, for the season that we are in as a church here at Cross Connection Church, but as the big C church, the church in the United States and the church in the West, but also for us as people in this nation, I think that Nehemiah is just the right book for just the right time. In a sense, Nehemiah, it, it's like saying for such a time as this, like we read in the book of Esther last year in the summer. So for such a time as this, God has a word for us through this book in the book of Deuteronomy. But really it's hard to jump into a book like Nehemiah without some context. And so what we're going to do today is kind of build some historic context so we understand what is going on so that our study in the book of Nehemiah over the next many weeks through the summer will make more sense. So to get our bearings, we actually need to jump back to the book of Deuteronomy to Deuteronomy chapter four. So in Deuteronomy chapter four, as Moses is beginning his message to the children of Israel, as they are preparing to come into the promised land, he says this to the people in Deuteronomy chapter four, beginning at verse one, he says, now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in to possess the land. Notice that. Listen to what I'm going to teach you so that you would live and go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving to your fathers. Skipping down to verse 9. Only take heed to yourself, Deuteronomy 4, verse 9, only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and to your grandchildren. Skipping down from there to verse 23, take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you beget children, grandchildren, and you've grown old in the land and act corruptly and make a carved image in the form of anything and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days in the land, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods, the works of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God, he will not forsake you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant 
of your fathers, which he swore to them. So there it is. The pattern is very simple. Moses is very direct. He's straightforward and clear to the children of Israel. If you do this and you follow the Lord, then you're going to be blessed. But if you don't, you're going to be removed from the land. You're going to be exiled from the land and you're going to go to another land that's not your own and you're going to be in slavery and bondage. You're going to serve all kinds of false gods until you cry out to the Lord. And as Moses closes, that's kind of the beginning of Moses's message in Deuteronomy. But as he closes the message at Deuteronomy 30, he writes this, Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in to possess. I call heaven and earth as witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. So it doesn't get much clearer than that. That is the perpetual message of Moses throughout the book of Deuteronomy. If you follow the Lord faithfully and you observe his commandments, then you are going to experience his blessing and you'll have long life in the land. But if you turn away from him, and you turn to other gods and you are unfaithful to the Lord, then you're going to be exiled from the land. You're going to experience all kinds of curses that will fall upon you. So that was Moses' message as the children of Israel are preparing to come into the promised land. This is his last word to them before he dies. So what happened with the children of Israel? Well, eventually here at Cross Connection Church, we are going to study through the book of Joshua, which is the book that comes right after Deuteronomy. So someday, when we finish the book of Deuteronomy, we'll go right into the book of Joshua. And in the book of Joshua, the children of Israel, it's the story of them coming into the promised land. After the death of Moses, Joshua becomes the leader of the people. He causes them to cross over the Jordan River into the promised land by a miracle. They cross over on dry ground. And then eventually they begin to conquer the land and they begin to have peace and some measure of rest in the land. And nearly as soon as the people have rest and peace in the land, they begin to drift and they begin to actually go back towards idolatry, which is the default in each of us. We, we'll find ourselves drifting towards idolatry. And so they begin to go back to, to uh, idolatry. Even while Joshua, their good and godly leader was still alive. So Joshua in Joshua chapter 24, he gathers all of the people of Israel together and Joshua speaks to the people of Israel. He says this, Joshua chapter 24, verse 21, or verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river in Egypt. Serve the Lord, Joshua says. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So the people answered and said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way in which we went among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwelt in the land. We also will serve the Lord for he is God. So 
they, they say to Moses, we are going to serve the Lord. And then they affirm that they're going to serve the Lord a second time in Joshua 24. At verse 21, we read this. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve him and his voice we will obey. So Israel comes into the promised land under Joshua and they have a desire to serve the Lord and they, they start to drift. And so Joshua calls them back. He's a good leader. He calls them back to faith and faithfulness in the Lord and they reaffirm their faithfulness. We will serve the Lord. So how did they do? Well, the book that follows Joshua is the book of Judges. And now Joshua and Caleb, who was also a great godly leader of Israel, they are gone. And now the children of Israel don't have Moses and they don't have Joshua. And in Judges chapter 2, we read these pretty sad words in verse 10. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. And then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, those are the gods of the people around them. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. And with those words in Judges chapter 2, verse 10 through 12, we have what is really the beginning of the storyline that continues for nearly the next thousand years for the children of Israel. During the time of the judges, Israel would serve God only when they had godly judges who rose up to lead them. Individuals like Barak and Ehud and Deborah and Gideon and Samson. And, and then the last of those judges, not really mentioned in the book of Judges, but also a judge is a man by the name of Samuel, who you get to know in First and Second Samuel. And then during that time of First and Second Samuel, Samuel is the leader of the people, but his sons are not good leaders. And the people don't want to have Samuel's sons lead over them or even Eli before him, his sons. And so they say that they want a king. And they think that maybe if they had a king, then they would live better and serve the Lord. So they have a king. In 1 Samuel, we're introduced to the first king, King Saul. And that doesn't work out so well. And then they had King David. And things for a time under David, they seem to be much better. And then after David's reign, Solomon follows, the son of King David. And again, for a time, things look as though they might work out. They had peace and they had prosperity under Solomon. They have a newly constructed temple. It was kind of like the best of times, but you could be certain that the worst of times were about to come because after the death of Solomon, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he comes to the throne to rule. And Solomon was one of the wisest men who ever lived. And you could say for sure that in his son Rehoboam's case, the apple fell about as far from the tree as it could because wisdom did not pass down genetically from Solomon to Rehoboam. Under Rehoboam, the nation of Israel is descending into idolatry. They, they really did under Solomon as well. Solomon introduced a lot of idolatry to the people, but it just got worse under Rehoboam and he was not a wise person or a good leader. And so 
as it may have been the best of times under David and for a time under Solomon, under Rehoboam, it started to descend to the worst of times because it was as a result of Rehoboam's foolishness that the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. From the time of Rehoboam, the nation existed as a northern kingdom of Israel, which we refer to oftentimes, or we, found it, we find it referred to in the Old Testament as Israel or the nation of Ephraim. And then the southern kingdom of Israel called Judah. Judah was the part of the nation that had Jerusalem and they had the temple. And after the split between the north and the south, the faith of the people, it descended rather far as well. It really began under Solomon, as I mentioned, that the people started to drift towards idolatry. Um, even though he oversaw the construction and the consecration of the temple there in Jerusalem, he led the people back into idolatry. And that idolatry just continues to increase after Solomon, especially after the split of the nation. The northern kingdom never has a good king. You can read about them in Kings and Chronicles, but all of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, Ephraim, they're all horrible idolaters. And they lead the people deeply into idolatry. The southern kingdom, they did slightly better, but still they were a pretty carnal people. And this is really the time of the prophets, especially prophets like, you, you read like Isaiah. Isaiah was a great prophet during that period of time. And just as God had promised back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, if you follow and honor and obey and serve God, then you will experience blessing. But if you depart and dishonor and disobey God, then no longer will you have his blessing if you turn away from serving him. And so if you study the history of the Bible, but you also study secular history, you will find that in the late 8th century BC, about 720, 722 BC, the northern tribes of Israel, they were defeated and removed from the land by the Assyrians. The Assyrians were strong in the 8th century BC. And then in 605 BC, after the northern 10 tribes had been exiled to become the lost tribes of Israel, in 605 BC, almost 100 years later, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he attacks Jerusalem. And that attack upon Judah just continues persistently for like 20 years. So that in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar oversaw the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and Israel and Judah were effectively removed from their land. For nearly 70 years, they were exiled in Babylon and they, they found themselves to their full, if you will, with idolatry in Babylon. And it was there in Babylon that as they were oppressed and as they were moved from their land, they cried out to the Lord. We read in Psalm 137, verse one, it says, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. There they are exiled in Babylon, remembering their homeland and crying out to the Lord. Now the upside of their exile to Babylon was that it was there that they, they basically turn away from their idolatry because they have it to their full there. And they cry out to the Lord for mercy and restoration. Remember, we read back in Deuteronomy chapter four, but from there, as you're exiled somewhere else, from there, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. And when you are in distress, all these things come upon you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant of your fathers, which he has sworn to them. So the children of Israel, as they're exiled, in Babylon, by the rivers of Babylon, the Tigris and the Euphrates, they sat down and they wept and they remembered Zion and they cry out to the Lord 
and God in his grace, he is going to deliver them again. And he uses an unlikely method, which is often the way that God uses. But it's a method that was prophesied. Perhaps one of the clearest and most amazing prophecies of scripture. You can find it in the book of Isaiah, specifically in Isaiah chapters 40 through 45. Nearly 200 years before the time that they were in Babylon and before their deliverance from Babylon, God through the prophet Isaiah predicted who the deliverer would be, that he would be a king from the east. And he actually names him 200 years before the guy even came along. The Persian king Cyrus is mentioned in Isaiah chapters 40 through 45 as the one who would deliver them. So in 539 BC, Cyrus, the king of Persia, he brings about the defeat of Babylon at this great battle of Opus. Again, you can read about this stuff in secular histories. And he brings about the defeat of Babylon and he takes over the empire. And so now the Medo-Persian empire is the ruling empire of the world. And when he takes over, when Cyrus takes over, he is the one who releases Israel from bondage. And we read about it in the book of Ezra, which it's important to mention that though we're studying through the book of Nehemiah, if you were to look at a Hebrew Bible, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are actually one book together. So this is kind of like the third section of the book of Ezra because Ezra is broken into two sections. So Nehemiah is kind of like the third section of it. But we're only going to be studying Nehemiah in our study this summer. But the book of Ezra, chapter 1, opens in this way, and it's, it's amazing. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given to me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So in 539 BC, Cyrus takes over Babylon they, they come in, they take over the city. He is now the king of this great empire. And, and I have a feeling, though we don't know for sure because it's not told to us in the scriptures, I have a feeling that there was this old man in the palace there in Babylon when Cyrus took over Babylon. And he comes to Cyrus and he says, I have something I want to show you. This old man's name was, was Daniel. I have a feeling that Daniel, because he was there in Babylon when Cyrus and the Medo-Persians took over Babylon, I have a feeling he's the one who went to Cyrus and said, I want to show you something from our ancient writings. And he probably showed him the writings of Jeremiah and the writings of Isaiah and said, our prophet who lived a couple hundred years ago, he said that you by name Cyrus would be the one who would deliver our people. And so there in Ezra chapter one, in fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecies and Isaiah's prophecies, Ezra says, I'm releasing the children of Israel to go back to their homeland to go and rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And so as you follow the history, two years later, after that, 539 BC, two years later, 537 BC, Ezra led the first wave of refugees back to Babylon. That You can read about that in the book of Ezra. And so they go from Babylon to Jerusalem to begin construction on the temple of God. And then a couple years after that, right around 535 BC, Ezra chapter 3 tells us that 
they laid the foundation of the new temple at Jerusalem. Of course, it wasn't like the previous temple, but it was a start. It, it was challenging for the people who had seen the former glory of the temple. They, they wept because they, they had seen the former glory and this was nothing like that. And almost immediately after the construction of the foundation, the enemies of Israel, they came together to stand against the work. And so by the decree of another king that would come after Cyrus, a king by the name of Ahasuerus, he caused the work in Jerusalem to stop. And so for 15 years, as you go through the storyline and you look at the, the history of this period of time, for 15 years, the work of rebuilding the temple, which Cyrus had decreed they could do, it is frustrated until the time of a new king. Another king comes along, a guy by the name of Darius, who is king of Persia in about 520 BC. And once again, they begin the building because the, the people there in Jerusalem, they asked the king to go look at the records of Cyrus the Great. And he said that we could rebuild this. So you know, Darius looks at the records of Cyrus the Great and they say, all right, you can rebuild the temple. And so with the decree of Darius, they begin to rebuild once again. And in only four years, they complete the work. So we read this in Ezra chapter 6, verse 14. It says, so the elders of the Jews built and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo, and they built and finished it, the temple, according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of Darius. And then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. Now, it wasn't exactly the best of times, but it certainly wasn't the worst of times either. And that's about where everything stays for nearly the next 60 years. The temple in Jerusalem is built, but the city is still in ruins. It's still, still destroyed after Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed it back in 586 BC. So the walls are broken down, the city is in ruin, the temple is built, but it just kind of languishes there for six decades. They had the temple, but everything is still collapsed. It, it certainly wasn't ideal. So in 458 BC, Ezra, the one who is this priest and servant of the Lord and expert in the scriptures, Ezra returns to Babylon and he calls upon the children of Israel who are still there in Babylon because most of them did not come back to Jerusalem yet. He calls on them to return back to the land. And some of them did. And a second wave of refugees returns to Jerusalem with Ezra with a heart to rebuild the city in, in about 458 BC. But it just languishes. It continues to continue in, in ruin for the next 14 years. And about 14 years later, we come to this period of time where we read this. It's right around the end of the year, November, December of 444 BC. And we read these words in Nehemiah chapter one. We read the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Kislev, the 20th year, as I was in Shushan in the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and the gates are burned with fire. Now, all of that was like a, a really long path to get to Nehemiah chapter one. But 
I know that you knew that we'd, we'd get there eventually. And it, it may seem like an, an awful lot of extra info to get to the book of Nehemiah, but all of this is important preface to help us to understand what was going on in Jerusalem at that point in time as Nehemiah hears this message. Nehemiah is in the capital of the Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, there in Shushan. And he receives word from family members that are trying to rebuild Jerusalem. They say, listen, we've been trying to do this for the last decade and a half, and it's just not working out. The walls are broken down, the gates are burned with fire, and he is distressed. It says there, there was a great distress and reproach as the wall was broken down, and this just fills Nehemiah with grief. Why is all this stuff kind of setting this up important? Because I, I think you have noticed we are living in distressing times as well. And I believe that the story of Nehemiah gives us some insight into how the, the people of God ought to respond in distressing times. When things are run down and they seem like they are in ruin and the people of God are divided and they are scattered. The children of Israel at this point in time, they were not united together. A whole bunch of the people stayed in Babylon. They stayed in Persia. They did not come back to Jerusalem. So the people were divided. And, and in that situation, when there is ruin and chaos and disaster and division, how shall we then live as the people of God? And that's something that we are going to think about as we go through the book of Nehemiah this summer. Now, be that as it may, Nehemiah, at this moment, when word comes back to him in Nehemiah chapter 1, he is in the same city where Esther, we studied the book of Esther last year, where Esther would have sat as queen 30 years before this point in time. So the book of Esther happened like 30 years before Nehemiah. And so not only is Nehemiah in the same city that Esther sat as queen over the Persian empire, but he's in the same palace. It says there that he's in the citadel in Shushan, which is where she would have sat with the king at that point in time as the queen over the nation. And if it had not been for Queen Esther and her cousin Mordecai, then Nehemiah would, we, we don't know how old he is, but you know that was 30 years before. So if he's under 30, he would not have even been born. And if he was over 30, then he would never have come to age. And so it is because God had worked through Esther in the book that we studied last year. And if you weren't here with us, you can find it on our YouTube channel or on our website to listen through our studies in Esther. But now because of what God did through Esther and Mordecai, now 30 years later, Nehemiah set up for such a time as this. And so we read in this passage in Nehemiah 1, I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are all in great distress and reproach because the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are burned with fire. How do you respond when you are confronted with distress, reproach, and ruin in your nation and among your people? That is the question. That's the question that a lot of Christians today have been wrestling with over the last two and a half years. You know, it's pretty interesting. I was on a teaching team teaching through the book of Nehemiah in July of 2018 in Sweden. There was a Scandinavian church leaders family camp in Sweden that I spoke at. And we were teaching through the book of Nehemiah and I was the one who opened the teaching in Nehemiah. And I actually, I looked at my notes from when I taught in that in July of 2018 and, and I taught 
this passage, Nehemiah chapter 1, on July 25th, 2018. And I was looking through my notes this last week at that message that I gave. And, and this stuck out to me because I said this in the message. You know, you go back to 2018, we weren't as much in kind of chaos in the world, but I said this in my message. I think you would agree, if you look back at history, these certainly are not the worst of times that we're living in in 2018. We have it pretty good. There is no imminent war. There is no apparent disaster on the horizon. There isn't a looming famine. We've got it all pretty good. So we're certainly wouldn't, we certainly wouldn't conclude that it's the worst of times. But is it really the best of times? So I said that in July of 2018. And here we are four years later. And interesting that I was teaching in Scandinavia because for those in Scandinavia, a war with Russia is on their doorstep. And so much so that Finland and Sweden are petitioning for entrance into NATO right now as I'm giving this message. So not only is there a looming war in Europe right on the doorstep of Scandinavia, we are coming out of total global chaos with more than two years of a pandemic. And the economy is in shambles and it seems to be teetering on the edge of a, a most, more than likely reset and recession or correction, which is gonna be challenging for people. And there are potential food shortages coming in the fall as many news agencies are talking about. So to add to that, the church, the church throughout the world, but especially here in the West, is I think in some ways, just like the temple during the time of Ezra, it is a shell of its former glory. It is surrounded by ruin. It is exposed with no defense. And only about a third of the people who were a part of the children of Israel who worshiped in the temple, only about a third of those people have gone back to the land from exile. It sounds in so many ways like the day that we are living in. That the church is experiencing difficulty in a world that is in chaos and turmoil. And the church has very little in the form of defense against all the onslaught of the things of this world. It would feel like that. I don't think that's true, but it would feel like that. And after the pandemic, you know, only about two thirds of the people have returned back to church who went to church before the pandemic. So how does somebody respond to all of this? Well, I think that Nehemiah's response in Nehemiah chapter one is really, it is instructive for us. Look at Nehemiah chapter one, verse four. He receives word about the distress that's going on in Jerusalem. And we read this. So it was when I heard these words, Nehemiah writes, that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Now notice this, verse eight. Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Deuteronomy chapter four. But if you return to me and keep my commands and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. 
Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, Nehemiah says, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For, Nehemiah says, I was the king's cupbearer. Listen, this is so important. Every great work of God and for his kingdom always begins in this way. Nehemiah stopped. He sat down. He wept. He mourned, the scriptures say, for many days. He fasted and he prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah confessed the sin of his people, but he confessed it as his own sin. And he repented and he lamented and he remembered the words of Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 4. And then in his prayer, Nehemiah recognized that he might just be just the right person at just the right place for just the right time. He says there at the end of those words that I just read, I pray that you grant to him, me, the servant of the Lord, mercy in the sight of this man, for I was cupbearer to the king. There are a lot of Christians in our culture who are trying to figure out how to best respond to all of the chaos and the ruinous times that we are living in. There are all kinds of ideas about what kind of policies need to be pushed forward and what kind of politicians that we need that will fix all the issues and the woes in our own nation and throughout the world. And I'm sure there are some really great ideas and there's a lot of people working very hard to fix the fix that we find ourselves in. But I think that it is crucially important that we consider Nehemiah's response to the distressing circumstances of his time. Do not miss this. There was a ton of work that needed to be done in Jerusalem. There were a ton of issues that needed to be addressed and problems. The city was in turmoil and ruin. They had no walls around the city. There were all kinds of issues in Nehemiah's day that needed practical solutions. There needed to be someone to go in and fix these, but none of those things were going to be truly addressable without the mighty hand of God working for nearly a hundred years. Before Nehemiah's distress here in Nehemiah chapter one, people had been trying to work to restore and rebuild Jerusalem and they had not been successful to this point. So how do you address that major problem? Sure, you could, you could get all the workers that you could ever find and all the money that you could ever find, but it would not work. They'd been giving people and money to this whole thing for nearly a century. And so how do you deal with it? Nehemiah stopped, he sat down, he wept, he mourned for many days, he fasted and he prayed before the God of heaven and he confessed the sin of his people as his own sin. And then what happened? Well, you have to come back next time because I have no time today to get in Nehemiah chapter two, but that's where we're going next week. Important words in here and, and important words for such a time as this because we are living in times that are drastically different in so many ways, but similar in a number of important key ways to the time that Nehemiah lived in. I am sure that you look at the world around you and you are distressed just like Nehemiah was by all the things that are going on. And maybe you have a whole bunch of ideas. If they only did this, if they only said this, if they only fixed that problem, there's all kinds of issues that we could try and figure out how to fix those things. But first and foremost, the most important thing that we as the people of God can do could, would be to stop and confess and pray and fast 
and ask God to move and to recognize that just like Nehemiah, you might be in a specially placed place by the Lord for such a time as this. But we need to stop and we need to pray and we need to seek the God of heaven for him to work mightily. So Father God, I pray that you would speak these things to our hearts and have us to remember these and hold on to them. And Lord, that you would help us throughout this week to do what Nehemiah did, to stop, to pray, maybe even fast, and to set aside some time to focus our attention upon you because all the issues that we see in this world, all around the world, they are not fixable without you and your mighty hand. So God, would you work in and through your people just as you did through Nehemiah 2,400 years ago. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.